Thank you for tuning in to Lunar Cat's final episode of our sobriety series. Can't wait to share Kate's story with you. Such an inspiring and fiery individual. Kate is someone that I truly admire and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Thanks for tuning in. Morning, or should I say? Yes, good morning to me. Good afternoon to you. I'll be on your continent soon. Oh my goodness. Yes. So you're flying to the UK today to see family? Yes. My partner's brother lives in London and we are doing all the expat stuff. Feels better that way. How are, uh, how long are you going to be in the UK? We'll be there. We fly out the 30th. So 10 days. Nice. Oh, I wish I could fly to London right now and meet you there. Come on over. That's amazing. How did your partner's brother end up there? He actually moved there um, straight out of college. The first job that he got, I mean, he's nearly 40 now. He's worked for them for a long time. But the first job he got out of college, they... It's, uh, he works in finance and he had worked in the New York office and then they wanted to open a London office. So they sent him out there and he never left. Nice. Love yeah. that. Yeah. And you were, were you there within the last year too? We were there just over a year ago, but yeah, last, last fall, earlier last fall in September. It makes it more um, feasible that I could meet you someday if I just jet over to London the next time you're there. No. We'll plan that for real. Um, I, because of COVID mostly, Ian travels, um, that's David's brother's name, he travels a lot, you know, um, Amsterdam and Paris and down to Spain. And I mean, honestly, a hop over to Germany would not be that far, you know, you come up to us or we come down to you. He would love that. I actually have been wanting to try the, I think it's the Eurostar or something, Mm -hmm. but it's like the long rail and it can take you all the way over there without having to fly. And I've always been super curious to try that. Yeah. I think that'd be really awesome. There's a stop in Belgium too. Um, rather than going to Amsterdam or Paris. Well, I don't know. Does it go into Germany? I I don't know, but some ladies that I just saw while I was in Paris took that Eurostar from London to Paris. And I guess it's like direct that way. Amazing. But yeah, it's so crazy even just hearing your voice right now. I know I've heard your voice messages before, but... I feel like I've met you and I know we haven't. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It's so weird, but I love it. And I was really just thinking about that I'm coming up on like like early next year in March, like three years of being sober. And that means that's almost three years of being connected to you, which is crazy. Wow. That is pretty wild. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on my podcast to talk about sobriety and what sobriety means to you. I just, I recorded earlier today and just all three of you just have such a unique perspective and energy and I'm just really excited. Well, thank you. I 
really admire your willingness. I think a lot of people, you know, going through any kind of life change have a desire to document and, you know, in your case, like you're actually going through with it and you did all this stuff and got people and set it up and are asking the questions and being willing to share it. And I think, you know, that's a major part. That is why you and I met, right? But that's a major part of, I think, most um, like really deep long-term recovery for people is connection. It is sharing with one another, like just being connected. And so I, I admire your willingness to do that through this podcast. Thank you. And I, I told the other, so I, uh, two other guys that I interviewed that when I first stopped drinking, all three of you were kind of this like virtual support system because I didn't really have, I don't have any sober friends in Germany. Um, and so at that time when I was, I felt a little bit more vulnerable, um, that was like a huge thing for me. And I know part of it was like COVID and people feeling more disconnected than usual because mm-hmm. we were being told we couldn't see each other and things. So, um, yeah. So you hold a really special place for me and I'm just really stoked that you're here. Well, you hold a special place for me too. Like I do, I, I won't say I meet a lot of people online, but I, you know, I talk to a lot of people online and for being a purely Instagram founded relationship. Yours is definitely one of the longest and deepest that I have. And I really, the way I talk about you or, you know, have mentioned you to other people, like you feel like a friend that I've had at least for some amount of time in real life. And it is pretty wild to think about the fact that we haven't. So that's fun. And I know when we first connected, you were kind of, you were like finishing up your master's degree, right? Yes. So I graduated in 2000, uh, 2000, 2021. And so that would have been 20, yeah, 2020 you and I met. So I was, I was smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah. Wild. So you've kind of had a lot of, a bit of transition, I feel like, since we've connected. You finished your master's degree and you're now working for, I I think it's a private practice, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a a therapist at a practice. I kind of looked at the website. It's really, I read your little bio and you have a great photo on there too. Yeah, it is. So it's referred to as a group practice, but it is um, a bunch of different therapists and essentially we just share resources, right? So, um, you know, we have offices and insurance together and an office manager and, you know, we, um, get to collaborate and, um, consult with each other on clients. And we also have two psychiatrists on staff. So sometimes that's helpful for our clients who are choosing, um, medication as a tool. And so, yes, I was very, very fortunate to get with them Um, it's called Seattle anxiety specialists and they've been around for several years here. Um, kind of a, an amalgamation of, uh, different varieties of therapy, different approaches, but all evidence-based. Um, we have a whole research squad that we work with too. And I first went over there, um, actually in grad school to do my internship, my practice, 
practicum and my internship. And so then I was, you know, like some people are very fortunate. I was fortunate to be offered a job um, right out of grad school there. So amazing. Um, the type of therapy that you offer, does it kind of like special in addiction or do you work with a lot of clients that are, have maybe like experienced the same thing as you or? So I, my boss and I are the, our director, we, uh, upon my hiring discussed, you know, kind of one of my informal roles as a substance use liaison. And he's definitely aware of my history and, you know, it's a, it's a very out on the sleeve kind of part of who I am and, um, personally and professionally. So there was no difference at SAS when I started there. And the liaison role basically allows me to, when there are, um, you know, those, those consults within the practice, folks are, um, you know, encountering clients who have substance use issues. Um, I, I am kind of the first go-to consult and then also with the outside world. So we recently, uh, one of the psychiatrists and I did an interview with the Seattle times, you know, um, under the name of, uh, SAS about substance use and mental health and kind of the integration and intersections there. Um, so that, that has been really nice. I, it's interesting client to client, you know, we're, we're called Seattle anxiety specialists. And so most of the folks coming in, right. Like have identified some version of anxiety that they experience or have experienced. And then it's through the intakes or, you know, even months and months of meeting, believe it or not, with a couple of my clients, um, that we then start to uncover, substance use. It's, it, it's a question that we definitely ask in that first meeting. However, you know, as as you know, as I know, it's not always something that people are just willing to talk about right away. So, um, sometimes we're talking about other issues, specifically anxiety or, you know, sometimes family issues or whatever, a lot of COVID stuff, obviously the last couple of years. And then once sort of that higher acuity stuff is out of the way, um, you might discover a like a a very enmeshed and unhealthy relationship to a substance, and um, then it's it's as if a big spotlight is shined, and there's there's a lot more information. So, I I do encounter it. I don't always encounter it right away um, in in this practice, at least in this work. Mm. Um, so how long have you been in that role there? Officially a year. And then if you include my practicum internship time, it's about two and a half years. Nice. Yeah. And I see a lot of, um, so I know that you were instrumental in starting uh, Ben's Friends National. Yeah. And that's, it's a coalition of food and beverage people committed to sobriety. Um, and I just see a lot of like parallels and things that you do. And I think that's awesome. Is that, is that a project that you're still involved with? Definitely. That is a project so, so dear to my heart. Um, I'm fortunate enough to run it with my partner also. So there are like, you know, 
two of my professional roles kind of intersect there and my personal life with sobriety and my personal life in, in my primary relationship. And, um, so yeah, Ben's, Ben's friends is an amazing group. Uh, they actually started six years ago in North Carolina, uh, South Carolina named after Ben Murray. He, so I guess I'll backtrack a minute. I am in mental health now. I also though, most of my professional history, um, going back to when I was 14 years old, uh, has been in food and beverage and in hospitality hotels. So I, for a long, 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 long time, a lot of my drinking and substance use and just lifestyle was based and, you know, like centered around the, the restaurant business. And, um, fast forward a bunch of things that happened. And then I'm, you know, working in mental health now, but my partner and I also own and run a restaurant here in Seattle. So Ben's friends is specifically, as you said, for food and beverage industry people. Um, Ben Murray was a chef who actually took his own life uh, about seven years ago. And about six years ago, a couple of his friends, our founders formed Ben's friends in his name, you know, um, there is a lot less stigma, I think, about recovery and sobriety and not drinking and mental health in general, which is great. However, this is like, you know, there still is some. And in certain industries, I think there's still a lot more as well. Um, and restaurant industry is one of those. So they were, the founders of Ben's Friends were particularly interested in creating a group similar to AA or or other groups, except like definitely not anonymous. That was one of their hallmark things. They were like, we are going to speak out loud about this because people like Ben were, were dying, you know, were losing their lives and, um, and really, really, really miserable for, for people who were still alive, really miserable in an industry that didn't have a lot of, it was all so hush hush, you know, it was so uncool to be sober. It was, um, it's just, it's, it feels like such a part of the restaurant DNA to be imbibing and, you know, partying and work hard, play hard. And so a lot of that just really resonated with me. Um, and even though, you know, at the time we started Ben's friends here in Seattle. So yeah, I, David, my partner is a chef. Um, and he had heard about Ben's friends from some of his East coast friends. And long story short, when we opened date row, about three years ago, we, he wanted to start a Ben's friends chapter. And so we got to meet those folks. And what's really interesting about it is that it was pre COVID. It was really grassroots. You know, it was like, you know, like you referred to Ben's friends national, like there was no Ben's friends national three years ago, you know, like it was only Ben's friends, Seattle, Ben's friends, Austin, Ben's friends, Charlotte, you know, like it was just these little grassroots cities. You got to open a chapter and then you just kind of did your own thing. When COVID happened and specifically, you know, to obviously worldwide, uh, you know, billions of people, but to the restaurant industry in the States, it was just this massive trauma, you know, this massive layoff for almost the entire industry. Um, and so the people who were in the industry trying to get sober or already sober, we couldn't go to our meetings anymore, most of us. And so we, we started Ben's Friends National. You know, that was the time at which it became 
a national organization. And all of the cities kind of came together. We started hosting meetings every single day on Zoom. Um, each of the city leaders, you know, we would have these meetings and try to, um, like, you know, it just evolved from there. We started having female identifying meetings, male identifying meetings. Um, we have late night meetings for people who were working in restaurants till like 11 or 12 at night, and then they could get on a late night. It was this incredible, incredible growth and evolution of, of a community that was already really special and cool, but to watch it become national. And then even in the last three years, like five or six more chapters have opened up. So I could go on and on and on about this organization, but it is you know, it's open to everyone. Honestly, it is just like, you know, it's a coalition of people. Like you said, we, we are interested in talking about recovery or getting sober or just relationships to alcohol and and other substances. Um, and, and the mental health, uh, facets of, of that as well. The, the dimensions of life that are affected by our relationship to these substances. And, um, it is still growing, you know, it is still evolving. Uh, we host a meeting at our restaurant eight row here in Seattle every single Monday at 10 AM. We have about 10 to 15 people who are kind of regular attendees. We still do a hybrid, um, which is just so cool. If you don't live in a major city, you know, where there's events, friends, you can literally log on to anybody who has one, you know, we're back in person now, most places, but you can still log on to a national meeting every single day. You can still meet people from different cities. And David and I have just loved, um, as we were talking about at the beginning, Mariah, like we have friends in all these cities across the U.S. like that we've never met, you know, and some of them we have been fortunate enough to meet in person, but it's just like, uh, it's just a family now, you know, and that was not, that was just not the case three years ago. So if you, if someone just decided to hop on to one of the meetings, is it kind of like similar to AA where you go and it's sort of a space, like a safe space to share your stories or experiences or what does that look like? Yeah, it's very similar to AA in exactly what you said. It's a meeting, you kind of log on, you know, people introduce themselves the difference is I'd say, and then, yeah, there's like a topic, you know, we'll talk about resentment or honesty or like, yeah, drinking in the workplace or sober relationships or whatever. And, um, I'd say the differences are a, you know, that anonymity part, um, Stephen Mickey, who started this said explicitly, we want to be out in the open. You know, we can't be anonymous because if we stay anonymous, then people like Ben stay anonymous and, and these people who are suffering are anonymous, Um, and then the other part is that, you know, AA and NA, those groups, they have a program, right? Like they have steps and sponsors and, you know, other types of meetings and organization that Ben's Friends does not have. So Ben's Friends is not a substitute for AA. It's not a substitute for therapy. It's definitely though, for folks who are just, it, it, you know, kind of introducing themselves or being introduced to recovery. It is an awesome, awesome place. Lots of the folks will uh, refer to it as a bridge. You know, I just needed to get in somewhere where I could find other people who were talking about this. And then you learn from other people, like what they're doing to stay sober, you know, like going to therapy, like going maybe to AA or CA or NA or whatever. 
Um, but honestly, it's that first kind of part of community that for a lot of people, I think, um, is the, is the X factor, you know, it's the, it's the variable that allowed them to, um, cross that first, that first hump of, of sobriety, which as you know, is, is so difficult for, for most of us. Do you feel like you helped create this space because that's maybe what was missing when you started your own journey of sobriety or did you have anything? Because I think you've been sober for over eight years, right? Yeah, I'm, I'll have actually 10 in January. Oh my God. I know. It's amazing. It, it, if it wasn't my life, it would be unbelievable because I am thankfully a, <laughs> a much more uh, evolved version of myself now, you know? Um, so yeah, I definitely, yeah, I was, when I got sober, I was 25. I was working in New York City um, in some badass restaurants. I mean, some of the best. That's why I moved there. You know, I'm originally from Dallas, but I moved there in my early 20s to work in the best restaurants in the country and the world, you know, and I did that. The drinking was ruining my career. It was ruining my relationships. It was ruining my health. I mean, I was months away from dying for sure. And so when I got sober, that was one of the giant liability, or it, it, it wasn't a liability. It was one of my biggest fears, you know, that I would lose this career and this passion that I was so, that I loved so much, you know, and I didn't have a Ben's friends. Um, and I, I think that is definitely part of it. Like, I don't know that it was missing. Like I didn't know, you know, that that kind of thing was possible. Um, there were folks in AA who were like, Oh, you got to quit bartending, Kate. Like you got to quit working in restaurants. That's, and it, it did feel really like othering and and unfortunate. However, you know, I also had New York City, which is full of AA meetings all the time and fortunate to get sober there because I would go to a meeting before my shift at like 2, 3 p.m. And then I would go to a meeting after. And there are meetings like literally every hour in that city. So I was really fortunate to be surrounded with other people in AA who under, who did understand, you know, and they didn't have to understand my industry to understand my alcoholism, to understand my newly, you know, 90 days sober self and showing up at a meeting crying because I didn't know if, if I could stay sober another day, you know, and those people really loved me. They, they loved me and they loved me until I knew how to love myself, you know? Um, so that, that is certainly, part of it that I, I did have to get sober kind of without that restaurant support. And I, I knew I wanted to provide that. I think also though, and you and I have talked all this kind of woo woo, spiritual, witchy, esoteric shit, you know, we love that stuff. And I think if I'm honest, I believe the universe gave me an opportunity to, to be involved with Ben's friends because honestly, Mariah, COVID in my entire almost 10 years of sobriety, the the two years of COVID, like the two deep years of COVID were the closest I've ever come to drinking again in 10 years. And they are the only time that I felt honestly like self-harming, like suicidal at points. And, you know, that isn't... Um, 
obviously something that I take lightly, something that anybody takes lightly. And I, I don't even think I really realized it at the time. It wasn't until I was really kind of coming out of it earlier this year and being able to be, you know, retrospective, look at it in, in retrospect and, and really see like, Oh shit, you know, I was down. I was, it was bad. It was bad, bad, bad. And so I believe that, you know, in 2019, but before any of the pandemic stuff happened, I was blessed with an opportunity through Avro, through my partner, through Mickey and, and through Ben, you know, um, to be a part of something that was going to end up saving me during that time, because I don't know that I would have stayed sober if it wasn't for Ben's friends during pandemic. That's beautiful. It's, it's really amazing how, and I feel like in some way, just what I'm envisioning with you is that you sort of just manifested this group for yourself. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, just your spirit. I feel like there's just this wispiness about you that you kind of just create community um, wherever you go. So it feels pretty natural that you would be a part of something like that. Thank you. I, I don't, um, I'm one of those like introverted extroverts, I guess, or extroverted introverts because both of my professions are highly involved with people and highly involved with community like necessary, right? It's a community and, and interpersonal relationships are just a a necessary part of both hospitality and professional mental health work. And I feel very fortunate. I am, you know, skilled in, in talking to others. Um, however, you know, I really am when it comes down to it, kind of a loner. And I, I love just my one-on-one conversations like this or, you know, my, my alone times. And, um, I think the, the main part, uh, you know, about community for me is, is really empathy. And I think, you know, perhaps, um, what you pick up on, you know, is that I, I can't help but feel, you know, folks around me and, specifically their pain, you know, and I, I know, uh, you know, I, I assume, I guess I don't know, but I, I assume you can relate to that as well. Just that there's something about people who have been to the edge, you know, and, and there's all different versions of that, right? Like it's not just substance use or various forms of mental health. You know, there are versions of the edge that, that happen for, um, marginalized communities and, for, um, you know, people in uh, abusive relationships and certainly for folks dealing with severe and chronic mental health. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of different versions of the edge where, where we're in a lot of pain. Um, but I think there's a little, a little something that comes with that, you know, and that we kind of can notice that in each other, like, oh, like you've seen some shit, you know, and we, we are drawn to each other in that way. And I think the, the energy that's emitted and, and if we're open to it, right. So I wasn't always open to it for sure. I was a selfish, like self-centered privileged asshole for, for a long time. And it took a lot, a lot of pain, a lot of humility, a lot of, um, a lot of surrender. And then, 
um, kind of, I don't know, like forced community, I guess. Like I said, they kind of had to love me till I love myself. And, 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 but it's through that empathy, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That is, that is really my, my connection to everybody else. Like, I, you know, I, I'm sensitive to that stuff. And I think other people are too. And that once we're able to sort of see that in each other and be vulnerable and, and just say that hard stuff to each other, even if we're not saying words at all, but just kind of recognize, you know, that's, that's an automatic friend. That's an automatic community that we've made, you know? That's, I love that. And now I'm just curious how you got from New York all the way to Seattle. When did that transition happen? Yeah. So I got sober in 2013. You know, I'd already lived in New York a while. Um, I got married a couple years later to the person that I had been with when I got sober. That marriage did not work out because people fucking change when they're sober. And um, I you know, I had changed and our marriage had changed and, uh, just learned a lot. Um, you know, my eyes were really open to, to a lot of things, um, including my relationship. So I got separated in, we were separated in 2016 and I was also, I had already gone back into school. So, you know, I got sober in 2013. I started volunteering with addicts at that time. And a couple years later, by 2015, I was in community college going back to school for psychology. You know, people had said like, and I did, I loved it. I loved peer-to-peer counseling. I loved working with addicts. Um, I was still working in the restaurant business, actually had the best jobs of my career at that time. Like, what do you know when you get sober, you get, (laughs) you get better at work, but, um, And so it was a weird transition and there's lots of little kind of moments of clarity, you know, little spark moments during that time. But I decided like, okay, I'll try school, you know, and, and do psychology. And so I went to a community college and then I went to a four year school. So by the time my marriage was ending, you know, I was already like almost done with school. I graduated, um, the four year college in 2017. And so I was already kind of like, on the edge of something, you know, and I was four years sober at that time. So I had some, you know, moments under my belt. I had a little bit, just baby bit of experience in sobriety. And there were just, you know, a number of things, how the, how it happens. Like just, it's easy to see now, but I'm grateful. I had people around me who showed it to me then too, that it just felt like, you know, something's going to change. I'm going to make a big change. And Turns out moving to Seattle was it. You know, I thought it would be grad school at that time. Um, it would be another year till I went to grad school. But, you know, I had been applying to some grad schools and not really sure if I should live, uh, leave New York. Should I go back to Texas? Should I go abroad? You know, I really, I was very intent on going to school abroad at that time. Um, but, you know, one thing after another and just a lot of stuff lined up, um, and I had been to Seattle before. My dad actually lived in Tacoma, uh, you know, which is right here in the, when he served in the Air Force. Um, so I, he and I had traveled here before and I just loved it. You know, I thought it was just such a fun city. And I basically was like, what do I have to lose? You know, like if I hate it, I'll just move back to New York and, um, and figure it out. And um, now I know, you know, figure it out is not, that's not really a way to live life, but it, it, it worked out at the time. 
I, um, I came out here. I actually ended up, I was, I was dating someone else at, at that time. And then I met David though, my current partner years before we, we started dating. Um, right when I moved to Seattle, I met him at the first restaurant I worked at, uh, downtown Seattle. And he was trying to get sober at the time. And, um, we were both dating other people, like I said, but we really connected. He had lived in New York too. You know, we had this restaurant thing. We had sobriety thing. We had New York, you know, and we, we became really good friends, um, back then. And, you know, then years later we would make it into something more. Um, and it's, uh, but yeah, Seattle was always just this, like, I won't say it was just a place on the map. Like it was more than that. I'd been here, but you know, it, it was meant to be again. I just, I do feel like the universe actually, you know, what's funny is that my sponsor at the time I had told her, I, th- I said, I'm going to move to Seattle. And she was being, you know, she was being a good friend, a good sponsor, just like kind of playing devil's advocate. Like, are you sure Kate, you know, don't run away just cause you're getting divorced, you know, like, come on. And like truly asking me to think about it. And I remember I got off the phone with her right before I was getting on the subway and I got out of the subway and there was a Filson store right there. So for people who don't know, Filson is this big outdoors company based in Seattle. And right when I got off the train, there was this big Filson store and they had one of those sandwich boards outside and it said, uh, established in Seattle, you know, 1890, whatever. And I texted her a picture, just like a literal sign, you know, like a literal sign right here that I need to go to Seattle. And thankfully a lot more thought went into it than that. But that was a moment I remember, like, this is really going to happen. You know, this is really, I'm going. And I, I'm so grateful for recovery as a part of that, because I, in, in recovery, you know, Mariah, we call it geographics, right? A lot of folks who are struggling with substances or other addictions, we're always thinking that it's, it's other people. It's the apartment. It's the partner. It's the job. It's the city. You know, it's my car. It's like, if we change the outside, then the inside will change. But as we know, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And so prior to getting sober, I had done a lot of those geographics. I was infamous for like getting on Greyhound buses and just like going. And it was really scary and dangerous and I don't recommend it. I was young and and silly and, and drunk most of the time. So the Seattle move, you know, what was majorly important about it, other than the fact that like my whole life is here and I have a wonderful partner and business and other career out of it, um, is that it represented going towards something instead of running away from something. And I think that's definitely a pattern from my active addiction days was running away, just constantly running away. Um, even the New York move from Texas, like I, I was like, Oh, I moved there to work in great restaurants. Like I did, but I also bailed on my best friend and, and our apartment, like just without a word, you know, I bailed on a relationship in Texas. I was so unhappy down there. And I just decided like, peace out, I'm going to New York, you know? And so it wasn't even like that. It, 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 it worked out, you know, that I was in restaurants and going to the Mecca of restaurants in us. Um, it wasn't even like that planned. So anyway, that was kind of a ramble, but I, I guess I'm just trying to say Seattle does represent a lot more to me than just like in terms of my recovery with, within that framework, it is a, a, a moving toward. And that's one of the greatest blessings of, 
of recovery for me is just, I don't ever have to run away anymore. You know, I, I am never running away. It, it's always running toward. Mm. I love that. It makes me think about how throughout my sobriety, I've discovered that I'm actually a little bit more of an introvert than I would have ever considered myself. I found that one of my main motivations for drinking was to essentially like survive certain social situations that I was in. Um, thinking really what it really came down to is like this fear of being alone Mm -hmm. and instead of like just being at home alone and enjoying my time or honoring my peace, I would just spend that time in bars, like kind of having these like unauthentic interactions with people. Yeah. And that's just kind of what it, what you were just talking about made me think of, uh, just sort of these things that kind of like peel back the further you get into your sobriety. Mm. Uh, There's just sort of like different phases of it. And it sounds like Seattle was like a big phase of that for you, like moving there. Yeah. It felt like, it felt like I really resonate with the layers that you talked about. We, We talk about that in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to mental health and personality, but I think it's absolutely true for recovery too, that, you know, I definitely just like wanted to quit drinking so that I didn't die, you know, and what it has become is this like multi-layered, you know, journey of who and what I am. And you're so right that it felt, you know, at four and a half years sober, sort of like a graduate degree or something, right? Like sort of like, okay, like, I've been in this safe place with my people for four and a half years and establishing myself and feeling good and getting married, getting divorced, like all these things, but to move across the country essentially alone and really test my sobriety and have to, have to know, yeah, maybe I can honor my peace. Maybe I can be alone in the world and, and still be secure in, in the core of who I am. You're, you're, you're spot on. And even with the, like you saying security, it also, I think for so much of my life, I lived around chaos and that sort of led me to seek chaos or in some way, like subconsciously create it. So now that I've reached this place where I have my really safe apartment and I have a stable income and I, I feel like secure and stable truly for like the first time in my adult life ever. And I don't think I, that could have been achieved. Um, one, if I was like living in Michigan two if I had never, if I hadn't moved out here like by myself. Um, so I, I see a lot of parallels in how you kind of took a plunge to go to Seattle. I, I wasn't sober at the time that I moved to Germany, but I think that moving here and kind of not necessarily hitting rock bottom, but what felt like the closest thing I've ever been to. So I guess it is my rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think would have happened the same way if I was like living essentially like where I grew up. Wow. It's, there are a lot of parallels. There's also, I hear a lot of kind of paradox in your story, you know? And I think that happens a lot for us too, that it's like, yeah, you had to like venture out on your own to like find, you know, kind of like 
go out into the wild to find security, right? Or like go out on your own to find a community, like go and, and be dangerous to, to become safe. And, um, you know, there is, I think a lot of that, like even, even, uh, surrender sort of, right. That, that word is used a lot in recovery circles and like surrender to be free, you know, freedom has become my most essential value. Like the thing that I honor the most, I think, um, it, 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 if I had to just pick one thing to live for forever, it's freedom and freedom from, from all kinds of things. And, um, and it's so interesting to talk about something like security and freedom, like in the same thing that, <laughs> that I can generate my own security and feel just completely free, you know, at, at, at the same time. And, um, and yeah, you know, I think that's an important part is, is like rock bottom. And we see this a lot with like the, like sober curious movement and, you know, folks who are just choosing to live less alcohol centric. You know, I think a lot of people our age and then also like people younger, Gen Z, it, it is just not as central to um, a lot of people's lives. And I think that's amazing that because because the rock bottom stories are there, right? Like my story is a rock bottom story. I, I was dying. I mean, my body was cannibalizing itself. Like I was jaundiced. I had no money, no job, no friends. My ex kicked me out in the middle of winter in New York. Like it was, my family had stopped talking to me. Like it was, I was done, you know? And so the rock bottom stories are there. I think stories like yours, you know, are equally as important, you know, if not more important because they're so relatable. And, and I used to do, um, like serve, uh, um, volunteering with a person who kind of started their story that way. They're like, you know, I hit rock bottom in a, in the living room of a house that I owned with two cars in a garage and a, a six figure salary waiting for me the next day like rock bottom is not, you know, it, it is your rock bottom, right? Your spiritual bottom of like, holy shit. I, I just can't do this anymore. You know? Um, so I, I love that. I love that you were able to, to see it before it, it got all the way down to, to whatever some objective rock bottom is, you know? Yeah. And I think that's also like another parallel and kind of theme. And the other two people I've interviewed for this is that your sobriety or your journey to whatever that sobriety is for you is exactly what it needs to be for that person. And it, there's just this like reoccurring theme of everyone I know that has this type of lifestyle, whether it be fully sober, Cali sober, whatever it is, it's a openness and an understanding that not all sobriety looks the same, but that there's still a sense of camaraderie that like there's, there is a situation that led you to make that decision, whatever it was, but it's, it's not the norm to not drink or not smoke pot or, you know, whatever, do drugs at a festival or something like this. Um, So it's, yeah, it's just really um, interesting how your circles also change when you sort of take that first step, whatever that looks like. 
Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it is this really nuanced balance between, yeah, what's right for me, what's authentic for me. By the way, I'm like deciding what that is because I'm newly sober, you know, like I don't really know. And, and, uh, considering those around you and, and sort of being able to, to move with those around you and watch and be mindful of how your circles change, right? Because it, it's scary at first, you know, you alluded to these like really kind of like shallow relationships at the bar or whatever. And it's scary at first to like see those people sort of drift away. Like, Oh wait, you know, am I gonna, and then to see the people that you, that you do begin to attract, but not because you were seeking them, you know, like at least for the most important relationships in my life, when I was being, you know, in sobriety, I mean, like uh, when I was being most, most authentically myself, the quote unquote right people were, were attracted to me, you know? And I, I was able to receive them, not because I was like on the hunt, you know, for new friends or a great, a good sober partner or any of that. Like those people came to me because I was in my big T true self, you know? Yes. Big T true self. I like that. Yes. I like that. It's a good visual. Yeah, that's, um, I think also the layers about sobriety are also coming back to your authentic self or learning mm-hmm. how to get to know yourself again without alcohol. Um, and I realized that alcohol was just like a huge crutch for me, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a codependency and, I hear so many people, even that I know that are around my age, maybe a little bit older than us that, you know, openly have told me like, I am struggling with my relationship with alcohol, but they don't know necessarily what the first step to take is because they feel so much shame mm-hmm. from maybe like mistakes that have happened or whatever, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's more that although alcohol is like so socially accepted, anything negative that happens around it is like such an instant instance full of shame that I think that can stop a lot of people from just saying, Hey, like this is just, isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to also do this podcast is because I think it's becoming more and more, normal for people not to drink it's becoming more socially acceptable like you're kind of seeing more like mocktail things or bars that are just like offering that type of product for people like it's not a weird thing if someone doesn't want to have an alcoholic drink um so i think that the stigma is kind of shifting a little bit I think so too. I, I definitely see it. You know, you mentioned the restaurants and, you know, I, I, I definitely see as a consumer and as an industry person, how much it's shifted. Um, the James Beard Awards, for instance, just expanded, you know, they do an award for like wine program and they're expanding that to like bar program, including non-alcoholics. Right. And like, because people are getting so, um, you know, creative and just passionate and there's like full on sober bars, right? Like that's one thing I want to do in London. There's like a couple really cool, like non-alcoholic bars that I really want to go to. And so you're totally right that like as consumers, but also like uh, in these professions, like it's just 
more normalized, you know, and it's still, I think, yeah, it's still hard if you're the one who's like, I don't know, like, am I like, should I, you know, like it's, it's still, you got to have your moment, you know, but the world is opening up to uh, a life that, and, and, a, and yeah, a young, a young person's life, especially the, the social life that, um, isn't centered just around like bar culture and, and alcohol culture. It's awesome. Do you ever drink like any non-alcoholic beers or what, what's your stance, your personal stance on like maybe foods or the one thing I always think of are like those chocolate covered cherries and they have like bourbon or something in them. I just, have vivid memories of my dad always getting those at Christmas. And I'm, there's a lot of candies like that in Germany around the holidays. And I'm so, I've always had this sort of irrational fear about accidentally eating one. Totally. totally. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I think it's something about the fact that you're like drinking it out of, I don't know. It's even though it's a piece of candy. Anyways, what are, what's your thought on that? Yeah, this is a this is a great question because honestly, it's it has changed so many times over my recovery. Um, in the beginning, I was super staunch, like I was just so physically addicted to alcohol. Like I loved the taste of alcohol, and honestly, Mariah, I still do. You know, I, I've said that to people. It, it if someone if a genie came down and was like, Kate, you can drink and use successfully and no consequences. You know, I'm like hell yeah, like I'd be in. You know, I love the taste. Like I just love it, but it doesn't work for me. You know, like it, it just, it will just never be good in my body and for my soul. Um, so when it came to like early, early recovery, the first two, three years, I was so far away from it. Like I would not order. Yeah. Like bourbon, bourbon basted chicken, you know, or like beer battered fried, like, no, I would stay away. Oh, the alcohol is cooked out. Like, no, thank you. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't take the risk of drinking again. And I was afraid that tasting it would, would take me over the edge. So, um, but to your point about the candies, you know, I went to this Christmas party. Oh, I probably had two years sober with my partner at the time for his, uh, restaurant. He worked for a big restaurant group and they had this just badass, like huge holiday buffet. And they had some of those little pastries, like these little cream puffs on the, on the, you know, dessert table, which mind you, you know, I did a lot of like alcohol replacement with food (laughs) in the beginning because I just, I needed to like indulge, you know? And so desserts like became my thing. And so I was at this table and I got them and then they like, they did, they had Bailey's or something in them, you know? So I bit into this cream puff and then it's just like, whoa, it just lit me up. And I remember I spit it out in a napkin or whatever. And then I ended up talking to my sponsor about it. Like, Hey, you know, this thing happened. Like, what do I do? Right. And she said, well, how did it taste? Like, what was your reaction to it? And I was like, Oh, I spit it out. Like I tasted it right away and I spit it out and I, I, I felt awful. And she's like, okay, that's all you need to hear, Kate. And I'm like, what? And she was like, you felt awful. She's like, if you, if you swallowed it, you know, if you wanted more, if you thought about it the rest of the night, like, Ooh, how do I get more of that? If you loved it in the moment, like, wow, maybe you should take a look at that. Right. At just one, one little sip of alcohol, how it affected you. Um, so that was always kind of a nice little 
gauge for me. Like we have dreams too, you know, you have drinking dreams and using dreams. And the question for me is always, cause it's happened since then, right? I've been at a super part, super bowl party and somehow I got somebody's rum and Coke instead of my Coca-Cola, you know, like it, those really cliche things have happened to me since then. And that was always a guide, which is like, how do I feel? after accidentally having it. Um, and that also goes to the non-alcoholic like spirits in the beginning of my recovery. I could not have had a non-alcoholic beer because it tastes too much like real beer. Now I drink NA beer all the time and I use in our restaurant, we use tons of NA spirits. We have a great NA wine. It's the best that I've ever had. She won an award out in San Francisco for it. She beat real wine with her NA wine. It's like so awesome. Um, yeah, it's called joyous. This gal is based here in Seattle. Anyway, we use that stuff at the restaurant and we have a full non-alcoholic pairing with our tasting menu and all this stuff, right? I drink that stuff every single day, but that is where I'm at now with almost 10 years. And it's not like, oh, I've got it. It's just something that I grew into after years of saying no. And I just didn't, this is almost back to the like authentic self thing, right? That I needed to like, I couldn't go off of anyone else's things. There were people I knew who were drinking NA beers since day one of recovery, you know, and that just wasn't for me. Uh, I, over time was exposed to more things. I'd had these experiences of accidentally having booze. You know, one of my big aha moments in COVID was making cocktails at my restaurant and smelling the whiskey and wanting it so badly, you know, like I, and that's what I alluded to earlier. Like I, I had not felt that in seven years of recovery, wanting that whiskey so bad. And I had to walk out of my restaurant. I mean, I had to leave because, I thought I was just going to start drinking whiskey. (laughs) It was so wild, but it was a cue to like how low I was, you know? And, and so I guess that's, yeah, I, my stance on it is to like do whatever the heck you want, you know, like have people around you who are going to give advice and tell you the truth and keep you in check and keep you accountable because isolation, you know, addiction breeds isolation and an isolation breeds addiction. And so when I'm, when I'm not connected, I'm more liable. Um, but I really, in the end had to trust myself, um, using those connections as sort of my, my support, but trust myself like, Hey, am I okay? You know, is this making me want to drink? Is this making me want to isolate? Is this making me want to lie to my partner or, you know, do something bad at work or just whatever, right? Not be my true self. Then I should probably stay away from it. But if I can still live a meaningful life and be a worker among workers and, you know, be kind and, and help others, like then I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I, uh, I, I take CBD now, you know, which is something I never thought I would do, but it's really great for my mental health. And, and so it's at this point in my recovery that I'm ready to do that. Um, but I don't, I don't think I could have used it responsibly in the beginning, you know, um, Anyway, kind of a long answer on your NA, but I'm drinking a CBD sparkling water right now. So I just, I thought about it, but I think it's similar. You know, you, you mentioned Cali sober, like it's, I I guess that's something too, you know, for people who are, who are looking at their relationships, like I wish someone had just told me, you know, there's actually an AA meeting in New York on Perry street that has this sign in there that says there's no wrong way to get sober. 
And people in this AA meeting hated that thing because they're like, there is a wrong way to get sober. You know, AA is the right way. And I loved that they kept it up. And I love that, you know, I hope it's still there. But I always think of that because in the same way, you know, as you were saying earlier, like we all kind of just have our own thing and that story has to be ours. Try to identify with other people. Don't compare, you know, don't say, oh, I'm not like that. I'm not like her. I'm not like them. Like try to identify, you know, because no matter what, who, with, how much, how often we drank, used, whatever, there are commonalities between all of us. And I think we get to decide, you know, what those commonalities are and then choose how we're going to live a meaningful life um, knowing those things. And if that means smoking weed is okay, okay. But just because smoking weed is okay for you doesn't mean it's okay for me. So respect my decision and I'll respect yours, you know, and that's the kind of recovery that I want is just supporting in a very communal collective way, supporting each other in, in our own unique identities. Yes. I love that. And it, it just makes me think of, um, just thinking about COVID, how that time was sort of like a low point for you. That was also a low point for me. And I, I find it that it was actually a blessing in some fucked up way that COVID happened because I don't know if I would have been able to get sober without the bars around me being closed. Yeah. So it was almost like this, like re what I was like running away from running to like into the bars I had, I was either going to become like a full fledged alcoholic, like non-functioning basically, or just like not have it at all. Yeah. So it's just interesting that like, it was like a hard time for you and it was a hard time for me in a different way of like, okay, if I keep doing this and it's interesting you talking about the smell, like how you smelled the whiskey and you wanted it. I have recently just smelled like my friend's wines or something like that, just to like, see how it made me feel. And each time I did it, I was just like, Bleh. like, it just yeah. all about was like throwing up. I was like, I'm going to puke. So I feel that just like also, I didn't think of it as like reaffirming myself. I was just trying to be like more adventure. I don't know. Like, I was like, let me just smell it. Like I used to take wine classes and beer brewing classes and, yeah. you know, so I am, in some ways still fascinated by how those things are made and I'm knowledgeable about it. Um, so sometimes selling it, I'm like, Oh, like I remember these tastings I used to go to. And so anyways, random thought, but no, I, I love it. That's big T true self, you know, like you were just like, Hey, you know what? Two and a half years. Let me check it out. This once was like, you know, somewhat of a passion or a hobby. Right. And then the, the somatic reaction, right. Of just like, "Mm, no, thanks. But then like trusting that, you know, and just being like, yeah, no, great. I don't have to go back. I don't have to smell to, to, you know, to be social or to be involved or feel accepted, you know, like I'm just, I'm in my big T true self. I'm, I'm secure. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm gaining from you anyway. That's, uh, yeah. Big T true self. I'm writing that down. It's fun. It it's yeah. My that same sponsor uh, out in New York gave me that. Uh, her name's Lara, and she's a badass. So thanks, Lara. <laughs> it kind of um, just sort of the note I want to end on. It makes me think of this sort of reoccurring theme with my therapist right now, 
about like, it's, I, I guess it's kind of a mantra for me right now, but I just like repeat it to myself. It doesn't belong to me. And it's things that kind of, it's sort of being able to label things that I will have like an emotional reaction from, but trying to sort of separate myself from that, knowing that like someone else's reaction or behavior or whatever they're doing doesn't belong to me. Mm. And I feel like when I do that, that's being true to myself. Like I'm not trying to shape or mold what I think someone else or a potential relationship or whatever friendship partner might need or want from me. Um, it's honoring like those things don't belong to me. Like I belong to myself. Yeah. I feel like it goes back to the layers also that um, just because I'm, I'm realizing that just because I'm sober doesn't mean that I've completed my sobriety journey. Like it's always sort of like growing and shifting and discovering new things that have been hidden for so long. Um, but I love yeah. that. It doesn't belong to me. It, it, it intimates too that if something does belong to you, you will also know it, you know, yeah. like shedding that, yeah, that codependent stuff, the people pleasing stuff, the kind of chameleon selves that we used to be and, and really taking a stand for big T true self. And I don't know about you, but like, I did not take responsibility for shit that I did do or shit that I needed to take responsibility yes. for. Yes. And so that I, I like the, you know, the, the self-reflection there and kind of the other side of the coin. That's like, oh, but like this one does belong to me and I need to, I need to apologize or I need to forgive or I need to, I need to explore this with someone a little more because this one, this one does belong to me, you know, love that. Well, it has been such a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you even more. And you just like amaze me. I'm just so excited. I love that we'll be in the same time zone. You'll have to send me photos of like your mocktails and for sure. Um, I just look so forward to the day that I get to hug you in like real life. <laughs> it is going to be a long hug. Yeah. Um, they say 20 seconds for endorphins, but I have a feeling it'll be probably longer than that. So thank you so much, Mariah. Thank you. You are, oh, you are just such a light. And I'm, I, I hope, um, I hope that I continue to be blessed by your light, um, as your friend and as your peer and your sister, you are, um, inspiring and, and I love you and I really appreciate you, um, inviting me to do this. This was awesome. Thank you so much. You have me, I'm tearing up. I'm like imagining the hug and I'm tearing up and then your words and I'm just like, <laughs> girl, if we can get tears across this like ether, that is going to be some good shit. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the final episode of our Lunar Cats sobriety series. Thank you, Kate, for taking time out of your day to share your inspiring story with us. You are a light in this world, and I really can't wait for the day that I get to hug you in real life. Thank you again to all the returning listeners. Keep leaning in.
keep staying cool. 